The children are dismissed for children's church. If you are in uh, up through fourth grade, you can go to children's church. If you're helping with children's church, please go as well, because we don't want those children running around by themselves. The rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 11. We talked about John chapter 11 uh, at Easter, so it was just a couple weeks ago, and then we went backwards to finish off John chapter 10, in part because uh, we wanted to talk about resurrection on the Easter, which I thought was appropriate, but then we wanted to go back and talk about John chapter 10. And so now we're jumping forward to John chapter 11, verse 45. We'll be reading John chapter 11, verse 45, through John chapter 12, verse 11. Here's what I want you to be aware of. I want you to be aware that, that when people get close to Jesus, it reveals what's in their heart. What is in your heart will come out the closer Jesus gets to you. And if you don't like Jesus, anger is going to come out. And if you love Jesus, what you're going to see is you're going to see witness, you're going to see service, and you're going to see devotion that looks like worship come out of the siblings uh, that we find in Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And again, this is on the heels of Jesus' greatest sign in the book of John prior to the resurrection, and it's this sign of, of resurrection of Lazarus. So Jesus has just done this amazing miracle where Lazarus, a dead man, was in the tomb for four days, and Jesus came and he cried out, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out, and they unbound him because he was wrapped in the burial clothes, and now we find ourselves in the midst of the Jewish leaders, but also... Um, in the midst of a gratitude feast beginning in John chapter 12. So, hear the word of the Lord. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, what we find is that there's a whole series of people intermixed in this uh, play, and that every time they express Jesus or Jesus gets close to them, what flows out of their heart towards Jesus comes out. Now, what we find is, uh, I, I love this um, section because we go from sort of bad and evil to very courageous. And what we find in, in the very first part of this is we find that some of the Jews believed. Notice in verse 45. Some of the, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So you have some people who see the miracle that occurred. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and they see it with their own eyes. And in the midst of seeing with their own eyes, they go, wow, this must be the Messiah. We're, we're, we believe in him. He must be the one who is here. And so they, they begin to believe, and, and what we mean by believing there is, is trusting and believing. But then there's some others who they use it as an opportunity to go tattle on Jesus, right? They actually, um, they don't necessarily believe or not believe, but what they do is they're like, well, what we're going to do is we're going to leverage the information that we have in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So Jesus becomes a polarizing figure. Some believe, and some don't believe, and they go to really um, get a better position. Or they don't believe to the point where they actually want to, you know, side with the rulers and the leaders of the day. And I got to tell you, there are times when I'll preach the gospel message, and there are times when I remember um, as a chaplain in the Air Force, I would preach the gospel message. And uh, we, we would have a gospel service. I would preach two services. One was a traditional service and one was a gospel service. And the gospel service was a very lively service. Uh, and it was a very responsive service. And I remember uh, I will preach the same message and I will hear people on the front row and it's almost like they're mooing. They're like, mmm, 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 that's good. Mmm, mmm. And they're furiously taking notes, right? Now, somebody too people down from them, it looks like they had just sucked on a lemon. And so their response to the gospel message is to sit there cross-armed, and they're not mooing at all, but rather they're sitting there in, you know, really judgment of the message at all. So we see this all the time. I mean, some people, um, I mean, some people in the midst of, of this, even this worship service, some people are, are taking notes, you know, good on you. And some of you are scrolling Pinterest, and I see you, you know, cut it out. You know, I don't care what you're going to eat later. You know, I don't need to be on Instagram or anything like that. You can put that away, all right? But that's, that's the response that we see. Some of the Jews believed and some didn't. And then some of the Jews weren't, weren't sure what to believe because as the Passover approached, and what we see is that um, Jesus, as he comes to the Passover, his third Passover that is recorded in John, we're going to slow things down. The first, you know, really 11 chapters of John deal with his first three years of ministry. Now from John uh, chapter 12 all the way through to the end of John, we see that Jesus slows down and he just deals with the last week of Jesus' uh, life. And what we see is that they're thinking about the Passover. They're coming into Jerusalem for the Passover, and they're asking, you know, is he going to reveal himself to be the Messiah? 
And some people are really wondering. And then, you know, some people, some people are just showing up to watch the car crash. You know, some people buy tickets to NASCAR races just to see if there can be a wreck that occurs. And so some people are looking around going, what's going to happen? Let's see the conflict. It's, um, it's a scary place. But notice what happens in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Now, I got to tell you that the chief priests uh, were made up of two groups. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. You see, they were sad, you see. You know, and that's how I remember that the sad, you see, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in eternity. They were just there for political power. They were there for um, the politics. They, they wanted to gather power. The Sadducees tended to be the wealthier people in Jerusalem. And so they used the religious authority to actually gain positions within the Jerusalem council. But, and they were often at odds with the Pharisees because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees were what we would call law-abiding uh, people that, like Saul to Paul. They, they believed. Uh, and so the Sadducees you know, are more liberal, you know, and maybe the Pharisees were a little bit more conservative, and so they're doing this. But you know what? You know what happens when you have a common enemy? Nothing unites two opposing groups like a common enemy. And that common enemy was Jesus. And when you have two people who are going at each other, they will unite around a common enemy, and that's what they found. And so they say this, you know, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. Now notice, they don't dismiss the signs. They actually say these signs actually happened. You know, blind people can see, and we don't know what to do with that. Lepers are healed. The lame can dance. We've actually seen Jesus raise a dead man. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do? So Caiaphas, notice what Caiaphas does. Caiaphas roughly says this, you fools. If you had any intelligence at all, you would see that the answer is very simple. It is better that one die rather than the whole nation. You see, Caiaphas was a cold, calculating, capable, self-sufficient, shrewd, self-satisfied, ecclesiastical climber. He had come to the top of his profession, and he was in the, at the top of his profession for about 18 years. He had a lot of clout. He had a lot of power. And what Caiaphas says is he says this, it's better that one die, it's better that one die, that one man should die for the people in verse 50, not that the whole nation should perish. You see, what's going on with Caiaphas is he's saying that Jesus has to die. Now, what the, the author of John, John is writing, he says that he's actually prophesying. That as high priest, he was actually prophesying that Jesus would die for the nations. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what Caiaphas meant, he was meaning murder. But in the midst of this, he's actually prophesying, saying that one would die for the whole nation. And not only for the nation, but that God would call all of the elect to himself. He would call all of his children and that this one man would die. It's, it's, it's fascinating that Caiaphas, what he meant as murder, the writer of the Bible actually says, John says, no, this is meant to reveal the vicarious substitutionary atonement of all who would believe and trust in him. You see, 
God can actually take, I don't know if you guys have seen this before, God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line with it. You know, you might have heard this one. You know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Or even a broken clock is right twice a day if it's not a digital clock, you know, if it's a regular clock with hands. And that's what we see going on with Caiaphas right here, is that God is actually using Caiaphas to bring about his plan for salvation. And again, you know, within the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was no appeal to truth, no evidence of spiritual commitment to the God of their fathers, but only, because again, think about this, these are the people who had been redeemed out of Egypt. You know, they had been redeemed out of Egypt, they'd been given the promised land, they had then been placed into an exile, whether it was the Assyrian exile, but most likely the Babylonian exile is what they're referring to, and they have seen God do wonderful miracles, and there's no appeal to the God of of their fathers, but rather the only appeal they make is this, and this is coming out of their heart. They are appealing to this, uh, policy, politics, power, and position. There was, in fact, no place for the truth claims of Jesus in the midst of their life. No place. And we read this and we go, we see this today. We see this in the midst of people who do not believe in what Jesus has done. And rather, they're only worried about their own position They're only worried about, and and again, they said, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our place? And what's going to happen to our nation? Because if we have an uprising, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take us out of leadership. And what will we have left? But the gospel says this, is that if you trust and believe in Jesus, and if you have Jesus, you have everything. But if you have everything that the world has to offer, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing It is much better to give up all that you have and have Jesus. He will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. He is better than what the world is tempting you with. And what Caiaphas is saying is really the gospel, is that one man would die for the people. You see, what we believe in the midst of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took upon himself all the sins of everyone who would believe. And he takes and bears the weight of God's righteous anger and punishment upon those sins. You see, you, all of your sins, you know, and a sin is just another word for saying, I break the law, I transgress the law, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And again, I love the baptism up here today, because when I started saying, do you uh, acknowledge yourself to be sinners? And I wasn't done yet. And they're like, oh yeah, we're sinners. And that's a wonderful place to be because you have to recognize that you're a sinner. In thought, word, and deed, you go against God's ways, his laws, his purposes. You don't do what you should do, and you do do the things that you shouldn't do. That's just the reality of it. And every sin, every transgression must be punished. Every time you commit a transgression, it must be punished. It's just the way it is. And either you take the penalty for your sins or Jesus takes the penalty for your sins. And one man dies so that all might be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you believe and trust in Jesus, then you believe in the substitutionary atonement for sins. That Jesus took upon himself the penalty and then what we call that is double imputation. Jesus takes our penalty 
for our sins. He takes our sins, and we receive His righteousness credited to our account. That's what we call it. We receive Jesus' righteous life through credit, imputation, and He receives our sins. Now, that's the good news of the gospel. Now, what we're seeing here, though, is again, we're coming right on the back of John chapter 11, where Jesus actually raises a dead man. And I'm here to tell you that some of you are here today because Jesus raised a dead man. And what I mean by that is a dead man spiritually. Because if you have trusted and believed in Jesus, then you are dead in your sins, as as Ephesians chapter 2 says. And what he has done in a similar way to Lazarus calling you out of the grave, he has called you by name. And he has brought about life. You know, when he talks to Nicodemus in the early part of John, he says, you must be born again. That's what we're talking about, being born again, believing. Some of you may not believe in Jesus, but somebody near you has had a life-transforming event occur, and you've seen that person go from death to life in the midst of their life, and you're like, I just need to show up and see what this is all about. Like, this person is different, And they're different where one time they might have had great anxiety and fear. Now there's a peace that I hope that I can have someday. And you're here to see what that's all about. Now notice um, we we transition from John chapter 11 to John chapter 12. And we get into this, what we would call a gratitude feast. Where um, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now, he came to Bethany, but we see that what happens in the midst of this is that he actually, the, the uh, Gospel of Mark says that he actually came to the house of Simon the leper. So think about it. Simon the leper, in other Gospel accounts, say it's Simon the leper, at least the 12 disciples, and then it's Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. There's about 17 people in all having this gratitude feast for Jesus. And can you imagine what's going on there? I mean, certainly we see that Simon the leper is talking about, you know, he's probably, I mean, imagine if you're a leper and you're now healed of your leprosy, immediately what you're doing is you're touching everybody that comes in shaking their hand. Shaking their hand and serving food. Because for years, you couldn't touch anybody. But because your affiliation with Jesus, because Jesus has cleansed you from all of your leprosy, now you can actually touch other people and, and, and welcome them and shake their hand and, and take what you need. And, and it's a wonderful thing. And imagine the stories. They're like, man, you guys wouldn't believe what it was like to have leprosy. And then you got Lazarus who's like, I can trump that. I was dead for four days. And I heard Jesus call my name, and I came out of the tomb. And Simon's like, yeah, but you know, leprosy versus death, you know. And then you're kind of going back and forth right there, right? And the disciples are listening to it, and they're witnessing about Jesus, and Jesus is there. But what we find in the midst of this is we find three responses to Jesus, and I think all three responses to Jesus are very appropriate by the siblings, And by siblings, and this is, um, John doesn't account that it's Simon the leper's house. That's also in Mark and Matthew. But in John, he talks about the response of these three, that it's Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. First, we see Lazarus. Lazarus, just by being there, is a witness for Jesus. And so we, we never hear anything in the gospel accounts of anything that Lazarus ever said. Never. 
But what we find is that Lazarus was a witness and that people were actually showing up at Lazarus's house in John chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. That when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Because on account of many, on, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, the witness of the changed life, of the resurrection from a dead man, was a witness for Jesus. And I think that that's one appropriate response that we have in the midst of when Jesus comes near us. Because again, what I said before, when Jesus gets close to us, what is in our heart comes out. If we have anger, if we have selfishness, we have greed, it's all going to come out, and it all came out with the Sadducees, Pharisees, Caiaphas. Now, in the midst of Lazarus, what he loves about Jesus, he doesn't say anything, but he's a living testimony, a living sacrifice for what Jesus can do and has done. So witness. As the people of God, we are called to witness all that God has done in our lives. And what has he done? He has raised us from the dead. We were once sinners, and now we're redeemed sinners. We're adopted children into the family of God. That's good news. That's wonderful news. And we get to testify. We get to witness to that to all of those around us. And the reality is, what you cherish, you will commend. What you love is what you talk about. We see that. Now, we also see, you know, what, what happens with Martha now, Martha, sometimes Martha gets a bad rap, I think, in the Gospels. But Martha, in the midst of this, we, we see this, Martha served in verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there, and who else is going to serve but Martha? And quite frankly, I think we need people in the church to do acts of service. We need that. And so I think here, now again, you know, she is rebuked um, in Luke chapter 10, because, you know, in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, you know, and this is the first time Jesus, you know, we encounter them. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him, her, him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And then she complained about Mary, and we get it. And, and Jesus says, no, Mary's um, chosen the better portion. But I think that in Martha's case, she was distracted from the serving. She was distracted from Jesus. She was distracted from worship. But I don't think that we're called not to serve and, and actually work in the midst of God's kingdom. However, we have to be careful not to become distracted by our work. We have to become very careful not to minimize the gospel in the midst of our work and think that what we do actually earns us favor with God, but rather we do what we do out of affection and gratitude for what God has done for us. So I think as the siblings are working this out, I think that we are actually called to have a witness, but I also think that we're called to work and to serve in the body of Christ. We're called to do that. But then we have Mary, and this is, this is the, the, the majority of this story here. Look at what Mary does. You know, Mary does this thing that we would call worship and devotion. You see, Mary, in verse 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. I think some people have said that actually came from the Himalayas, like across India. I don't know how she got it. Some people speculate that she was pretty well off. 
And here's what she did. She took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And then the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we know that Judas actually makes the comment that this could have been sold for 300 denarii. The, a one denarii was the wage of a laborer, a common day laborer. Uh, if we think about that, and by today's standards, she basically takes a pound of ointment, a pound of perfume that costs somewhere between, I don't know, like $30,000 and maybe $50,000, and she breaks it and just uses it all up upon Jesus. You see, her devotion to the Lord was so great because she had sat at his feet. She had listened to what he said. She believed in him. He had raised her brother from the dead. And she says, I'm going to give my all. This is my best. I'm going to give my very best to Jesus because I love him so much. Yeah, there's um, a story about a... Um, uh, a pastor, um, and F.B. Meyer tells this story. He says that there was an occasion where a preacher suggested to his hearers that they make a love offering to Jesus of something that was especially precious. And so we love to give costly gifts to each other, so why not make a costly gift to Jesus? And as the offering plate was passed, jewels and other valuable items filled the trays. But among them was something especially precious. An older woman had given a note, and she placed a note in the offering plate. And on the note, she said this. She said that her daughter had long wanted to go to far lands as a missionary, but that her mother had stood in her way, not wanting to part with her. Now, out of love for Jesus, she would no longer stand in her daughter's way, but would give her daughter up for the spread of the message about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, really what we see in the midst of, of Mary is, what do you love the most? And are you willing to give that which you love the most to Jesus? Um, you, ever, um, you ever try to get somebody to love what you love? You ever try that? You want somebody to love what you love? Like, for example, like, um, you know, maybe, you know, you're, you're, you went to KU, and so you love KU football, you love KU basketball, so somebody comes from another state or something, and you just do everything that you can to be as obnoxious as you possibly can, you know, to get them to come alongside and to really, you know, be a part of the KU family of sports and things like that, right? All right. How about this one? I don't get this one. You ever have somebody who wants you to eat something or drink something that you know you won't like, and they give it to you? Like, for example, let me just throw one out there. Kombucha. That stuff's nasty. That's some skunk water, y'all. I don't, I don't want any of that, okay? I don't want it. I don't care how good it is for me. You know, I just want to die and go be with Jesus every time I smell that stuff, right? <laughs> stuff's bad. How about another one? You know, um, I've been to the KU airport a bunch, and I got a couple people who are like, don't you love the new Kansas City airport? And I go, nope, not so much. 
And they're like, why? I said, well, first of all, I like convenience. I like to be able to walk in and like a hundred steps all the way from my car to the plane. Now I got to walk a long way and I got to, you know, I, I'm, I'm there to fly. I'm not there to be in a mall. Okay. If I wanted to go to a mall, I'd go someplace else. I don't love the Kansas City airport. I, I miss the convenience. You know, our parents are getting older. I wish they only had to take like a hundred steps to get there. You know, the traffic's a mess, all this other stuff. And yet I got guys telling me all the time, like, you got to love it, man. You got to love it. You got to love it. And I'm like, no, nah, man, I don't love it. Those are silly things, right? But the reality is this, as a pastor, here's what I really want. I want you to love Jesus. I'm not worried about, you know, athletics. I'm not worried about kombucha, certainly. You know, I'm not worried about um, the airport, but what I am worried about is Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love him enough to give your very best to him? Do you love him enough? Do Do you understand what he's done for you? Do you understand the sacrifice that he has made for you? Do you understand the promises that he's given you? Do you understand the future that you will inherit with him? I so want you to know Jesus and to say, I will give all to Jesus. I will give my very best to him. It's similar to this um, I heard a pastor talking about this, and I think it's true. I want you to think about Psalm 42. Some of this is one of your favorite uh, songs, or you put it to song. You know, it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I think that's the, the attitude of worship when we come in here. You know, that's the attitude of Mary when she gave her very best. She goes, my soul longs and thirsts. Now, I want you to think about this. You know, notice what it says. You know, um, you know as a deer pants for flowing streams. Do you know when a deer pants? Like, all, all the Christian bookstores have totally jacked this thing up, by the way. Because they all got little pictures of deers just wandering around. A wandering deer is not a panting deer. Do you know when a deer pants? When somebody like John Harvitt is shooting at it, all right? Because that deer knows that if he doesn't get away, he's going to be mounted on John's like garage somewhere and be eaten. And so that deer is panting to get away. And he's saying, I long for God because he will save me. He will refresh my soul. Unfortunately, you know, when we think about that, we think of just these great bucolic scenes where, and even the song, you know, as the deer, and it should be like, uh, like this really high tempo song where the deer is running away, scared for its life. And what Mary is saying here in the midst of this is she's saying, I long for God like that. Like, I long for it. Matter of fact, I long for it in such a way that I want to come to church so bad to sing songs of deliverance and be reminded of the salvation that I have in Christ. My soul desperately longs for this to the point where I want to give my very best in the midst of worship. I want to come to worship and I want to sing with great joy. I want to give generously. I want to serve willingly. I want to testify with great courage to all the people around me, all that Jesus has done for me. And because Jesus, you know, is asking for my best, and he's given me his best, I just want to give. Now, as we think about this, look at who shows up 
And again, who flows out of the heart? Again, as the siblings come, they witness, they work, and they worship. But in the midst of that, you got Judas, right? And by the way, not a lot of children named Judas today, right? Pretty much Judas and Adolf are two names that have gone out, right? Like we don't name children like that. Judas shows up and Judas says this. He goes, um, hey, um, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You know, you're always going to have opposition to true worship and devotion. You're going to have people who say, you know, we, we, you know, we shouldn't give our money to, to build beautiful buildings. We should give our money to the poor. My question is, the money that you're saving by not giving to the beautiful building, are you giving it to the poor? Are we doing that? Are we giving our best? Are we, are we giving what we have because we love Jesus? Again, Mary broke the bank and said, I'm giving it all. I'm giving you my very, very best. Lord Jesus, take it and use it. And, and here's, you know, again, um, in the midst of this, in, in the midst of worship, you know, there'll be some people who come in and they will actually, rather than you know, join in worship, they actually become criticizers of worship. Like, so when you come into worship, don't be like Judas criticizing worship. Come in like Mary and go, I can't wait. My soul longs for the living God. I can't wait to sing. I can't wait to pray. I can't wait to hear the word ex- you're just expounded upon. I can't wait to take communion. I can't wait to see people testify and be baptized. I can't wait for that. My soul longs for that. As opposed to coming in and going, well, let's see if I like the music today. Let's see if I really like his sermon today. Let's see. Don't be like Judas. Be like Mary. That's the joy of of, of worship. I think about, um, let, me, let me conclude because I'm going to run over if, if, if I don't. You know, um, there was a man uh, who wanted to be a preacher, but he lacked the needed gifts. And he became a very successful businessman and earned a great deal of money, but he always wanted to do something for Jesus. So he helped to open up a mission hall in the center of a major city. And after the mission closed each Friday evening, he would arrive in working clothes with a bucket of water and a brush. And on his knees, he scrubbed the floor and washed the chairs. For quite a while, no one knew that this very successful, very wealthy man, that he was doing this act of service. But one Saturday, some of the men from his own company went to the mission and found him scrubbing. And they said, you shouldn't be doing this. We'll do it ourselves or pay someone else to do it. But he objected and he said, no, he said, please let me do it. I want to do it for Jesus' sake. I love him and I just want to serve and honor him. You know, again, as we think about the idea of the siblings as they come in John chapter 12, we are called to, to I think, witness I think we're called to acts of work and service, and I think we're also called to worship. Why? Why? It's because of what Jesus has done for us. 
See in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Why do we witness and worship and work? It's because we've been saved. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You see, Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us so that we might have life and have it have life eternal, so that we might live a life and live an abundant life, a life that is filled with peace and joy, even in the midst of life's sufferings. So brothers and sisters, as you come forward, I pray that you would come forward like a deer panting for streams of living water. And for many of you, I know that you're feeling pretty dry right now. And this table is meant for those believers who feel very dry, who long to be refreshed, to drink living waters. So come. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord, and He invites all those who trust and believe in Him to come and partake. If you don't believe, don't partake, but rather trust and believe in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are thankful for the way that you have given us signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Father, we're thankful for baptism. We're thankful for the Lord's Supper. We're thankful that we get to participate and and see these signs in front of us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we do them together, as we worship together, that we will be a fragrant aroma. Because Father, even in the midst of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion, Father, the remnants of the nard that Mary poured upon him were there. And the fragrance of life goes forward. So, Father, as we come, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bless these elements. They will always remain bread and juice. But, Father, spiritually, you pour out upon your people grace upon grace upon grace. So, Father, place courage within our hearts to live for you and to love you. And, Father, may we respond with worship. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.